Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that'll hurt you, and you'd stay. I don't know why I did the things I did. I don't know why I said the things I said. Well, that's uh, sure trying to turn back time. <laughs> Well, here on Southern FM, we can turn back time. We're going to go back 55 years to Apollo 8. Yes, we did that last week, but we left them in orbit around the moon. So let's see how they got back home. And also, we don't need to turn back time. In fact, we need to forward time a little bit. We're going to learn about SLIM, a Japanese lander, which is due to land on the moon, and Astrobiotics Peregrine, which is due to be launched towards the moon uh in the early days of next month. Now, to Apollo 8, the Christmas mission, 1968, 55 years ago, and uh, Frank Borman gave these Christmas greetings. As God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called these seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. And that message from the moon came as Apollo 8 neared the end of its 10 orbits around the moon. So all too soon it was time to ignite the service propulsion engine and accelerate out of lunar orbit and head for home. Their speed increased by 44,000 kilometres per hour up to 9,700 kilometres per hour to get them out of lunar orbit. Of course, on the way to the moon, they had been quite astonished by the view of the Earth rather than the view of the moon. Houston, what you're seeing is the Western Hemisphere looking at the top is the North Pole. In the centre, just lower to the centre, is South America, all the way down to Cape Horn. I can see Baja, California, and uh, the southwestern part of the United States. There's a big fog cloud bank going northeast. Covers a lot of the Gulf of Mexico, going up to the eastern part of the United States. And it appears now that the east coast is cloudy. I can see clouds over uh, parts of Mexico. The parts of Central America are clear. And we can also see the light bright spots of the uh, sub-solar point on the light side of the uh, Earth. Okay, for colors, the waters are all a sort of a royal blue. Clouds, of course, are uh, bright white. The reflection off the Earth is uh, much greater than the moon. Uh, the land areas are generally a brownish, uh, sort of dark brownish uh, to light brown in, uh, texture. Many of uh, the Vortices of clouds can be seen of uh, various weather cells. And uh, 
long band of uh, serious clouds that extend uh, from the entrance to the uh, Gulf of Mexico going straight out across the Atlantic. The Terminator, of course, cuts through the Atlantic Ocean right now, going from north to south. The southern Hemisphere is almost completely clouded over, and uh, up near the North Pole, there's quite a few clouds. South, uh, southwestern Texas and southwestern United States is clear. I'd say there's some clouds up in the northwest and over uh, in the uh, northeast portion. After blasting out of orbit, then we had Harrison Smith in Mission Control. Harrison Smith read up a parody written by some of the friends of the astronauts at Cape Canaveral. Hi, Boy Jack uh, here, and uh, we've got some good work here that originated at the Cape with a bunch of friends of yours. And uh, it's sort of in a paraphrase of a poem that uh, you're probably familiar with. Uh, do you read me out, Apollo 8? You're loud and clear, Jack. <laughs> okay, it was the night before Christmas and way out in space. The Apollo 8 crew had just won the moon race. The headsets were hung by the consoles with care in hopes that Chris Kraft soon would be there. Well, Frank Borman was nestled all snug in his bed while visions of rest mats danced in his head. And Jim Lovell and his couch and Anders in the bay were racking their brains over a computer display. When out of the disky there rose such a clatter, Frank sprang from his bed to see what was the matter. Away to the sextant he flew like a flash to make sure they weren't going to crash. The light on the breast of the moon's jagged crust gave a luster of green cheese to the gray lunar dust. When what to his wondering eyes should appear but a Burma shave sign saying Kilroy was here. <laughs> but Frank was no fool, he knew pretty quick that they had been first, this must be a trick. More rapid than rockets, his curses they came. He turned to his crewmen and called them a name. Now level, now Anders. Now don't think I'd fall for that old joke you've written up on the wall. They spoke not a word but grinning like elves and laughed at their joke in spite of themselves. Frank sprang to his couch, to the ship gave a thrust, and away they all flew past the gray lunar dust. But we heard them explain ere they flew around the moon, Merry Christmas to Earth, we'll be back there real soon. Great job, gang. Thank you very much, that's a very good point. But in order to win the race, you gotta end up on the carrier. And that poem was read by Jack Schmidt, who actually later went to the moon as a geologist on the final Apollo landing mission, which was Apollo 17. And that reading came at 89 hours and 59 minutes into the mission as they headed back towards Earth. Well, on last week's show, we had Walter Cunningham discussing aspects of the mission and he's back here again to describe the homebound part of the trip. On the tenth and final trip across the back of the moon came the most suspenseful moment of the space program to that time. Shortly before re-establishing contact it was necessary to burn the service module engine for two and a half minutes if they were ever to return home. 
talk about a pregnant pause. That was it. Waiting for radio contact at the proper acquisition time, we all held our breath. And when they appeared on time with the spacecraft tracking for home, a loud and spontaneous cheer went up that would be repeated each time this scene was reenacted in the years following. It seemed only minutes later that Borman reported, Lovell is already snoring. In the control room, we were all laughing then in that nervous way caused by excitement. Borman, Lovell, and Anders had hung their fannies over the cliff and had been able to bring them in on cue. It was not the cheap thrill of a circus stunt or of forcing oneself to dive off a 30-foot tower or submitting to an impulse to walk the edge of a tall building, but rather the satisfaction of accomplishing an objective which entailed a lot of risk professionally and under control all the way. The long fall back toward Earth ended with Apollo 8 entering the atmosphere at an unprecedented 40,000 kilometers per hour. We here on Earth waited anxiously. Would the crew survive? Go ahead, Apollo 8. Outstanding. And President Johnson was in the final weeks of his presidency when Apollo 8 returned to Earth. And of course, he wasted no time making a phone call to the astronauts. Europeans uh, nearly five centuries ago who heard stories of the new world for the first time. There's just no other comparison that we can make that's equal to what you've done or to what we feel. I had a memorandum uh, a short time ago from uh, the men who handle the Washington-Moscow hotline, and I thought you would be interested in a portion of that memorandum to the president. It said that due to uh, uh, the interest of the Soviets in the Apollo program, they... uh, We asked them, uh, after we heard from them on Apollo 7, uh, if they would be uh, interested uh, in being informed of developments in Apollo 8. And the hotline personnel in Moscow responded enthusiastically and uh, asked us to keep them posted. So we informally here at the hotline in Washington relayed information in regard to the most important aspects of your flight. And the Soviets were very solicitous about the welfare of you astronauts and expressed a great interest in the success of the flight. Now, we all know that you men were supported by an elaborate technical apparatus and by many brilliant and devoted uh, men and women uh, here on the ground. And we salute all of them as we salute you. The first thing I did this morning when things looked uh, good was to call your boss, Dr. Payne and uh, Jim Whitman, an admiration for the three of you that were out there in the vastness of space. If I could have exchanged thoughts with you, I was going to ask you whether it felt better going coming down or going up. Uh, and 
to have you tell me some of your experiences because you've seen uh, what man has really never seen before. You've taken us, taken all of us, all over the world into a new era. And my thoughts this morning went back to more than 10 years ago in the Pernalis Valley when we saw Sputnik uh, uh, racing through the skies and we realized that America had a big job ahead of it. It gave me so much pleasure to know that you men uh, have done a large part of that job. So uh, we rejoice that you are well and we send you congratulations from all of your fellow countrymen and from uh, all uh, peace-loving people in the world. Well done. And so ended one of the most daring space flights 55 years ago. Next year, NASA plans to send the Artemis II crew of four around the moon. They will be the first people in half a century to see the whole of the moon. I saw the crescent You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, The Sounds of the Bayside. Where? This is the Space Show. The Americans, the NASA, will be launching a spacecraft called Europa Clipper to go to Jupiter and go into orbit around Jupiter and make many, many flybys of the moon Europa in order to find out more about Europa. Well, they've launched a campaign called Message in a Bottle, which invites people around the world to sign their names to a poem by Ada Limon. So if you, a dear space show listener, want your name to travel to Jupiter, then point your internet web browser at europa.nasa.gov and then click on the Message in a Bottle link. Now, a warning, this offer closes on New Year's Eve. So you've only got a few days left to do this. So europa.nasa.gov and uh, then you can have your name placed aboard the Europa Clipper spacecraft when it heads off to Jupiter. 88.3 Southern FM This is the Space Show. On September the 6th of this year, the Japanese spacecraft launched a spacecraft called SLIM, S-L-I-M. And it wished by the moon, and then out into deep space, and then has been drawn by gravity back towards the moon. And on December the 24th or 25th, depending on your time zone, it went into orbit. Now, it's due to land on the moon on January the 19th next year at 1520 Universal Time Coordinated. Uh, That's worked out at um, January the 20th at 2.20 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And if it doesn't make that landing, there is a backup on February the 16th. The landing site is going to be near Shioli Crater, 
which is a 270-metre diameter crater inside the Cyrillus crater, which is 93 kilometres in diameter. And that's at 13 degrees south and 25 degrees east. It's going to be uh, two little rovers as well, a hopper and a shape changer. But we'll tell you about that later in January. To be launched next month is a spacecraft called Peregrine One. It's by the Astrobiotic Company, and here's a little story about that. Good afternoon, and welcome to NASA's What's On Board briefing for the agency's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLIPS, initiative. My name is Nilifa Ramji with NASA's Office of Communications, and today's briefing will preview one of the first CLIPS flights, Astrobotics Peregrine Mission One. Astrobotic is scheduled to launch aboard ULA's Vulcan rocket no earlier than December 24, 2023. This briefing will address the significance of the CLIPS flight and highlight the NASA-provided payload flying aboard Peregrine, Astrobotic's Peregrine Lunar Lander. Our briefers today are Joel Kern, Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration with NASA Science Mission Directorate, Ryan Watkins, Program Scientist with NASA Science Mission Directorate, Chris Colbert, Program Manager with NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, John Thornton, CEO for Astrobotic, and Haley Moosebrugger, Payload Manager with Astrobotic. First, we'll start with some initial remarks from each of our briefers. We'll now begin with opening remarks from Joel Kern. Joel? Thank you. It's really exciting to kick off a new American adventure on the moon starting this uh, December. As part of Artemis, robotic spacecraft will conduct important scientific studies in the near future and then later in parallel with exploration by astronauts on the moon. Now, NASA continues to be very successful with robotic scientific missions in space. You've probably seen Perseverance roving on Mars or the deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope. Over decades and over careers of work, uh, we've developed what we consider our practices for mission success. We, For example, we spend the effort to ask ourselves um, before we launch, what else could we do to make this successful? Now, about five years ago, NASA decided to use a different and we think innovative approach for in the future to conduct scientific work on the surface of the moon. We would go out and seek commercial services from American companies rather than NASA owning the mission, developing a custom spacecraft and operating it ourselves. This is part of our effort to use commercial services and public-private partnerships where we think those are appropriate. Instead of flying or designing NASA lunar landers, we're contracting with American companies to take our scientific experiments, engineering tests, and technology demonstrations from the Earth to the moon, soft land them on the moon, and then send our scientific and engineering data back to Earth. This is a deliberate change. We think it's innovative. It's to leverage the innovation and the entrepreneurship of American private industry to accomplish these public goals. If there are American companies providing a delivery service to the moon, we feel that the cost of buying a service should be much less than NASA owning a custom end-to-end mission. This would increase the number of missions to be conducted each year, allow other individuals to join in those commercial missions, and eventually develop commercial service providers for our wider Artemis effort. At that point, NASA would just be one buyer of many for lunar landing services. NASA's commercial lunar payload services, called CLIPS, uses fixed-price service contracts, not traditional spacecraft development contracts. One important thing to note here is that 
These lunar missions are the company's missions, not NASA's missions. We've asked industry to ensure a soft landing and be able to operate on the lunar surface. Those are that's a two really difficult tasks. Landing on the moon is extremely difficult, and we recognize that success can't be assured. The surface of the moon holds many robotic spacecraft which did not soft land and complete their missions. With CLIPS, American companies are using their own engineering and business practices instead of relying on NASA's procedures and oversight to fly their missions to the lunar surface. More than five years ago, many in industry were competing to land or to work to land um, uh, landers on the surface of the moon, competing for the Google X Prize, or they worked with NASA as part of an effort called Lunar Catalyst. American industry more than five years ago said they were ready to provide this type of service, and CLIPS is a test of that. So we're on the brink of landing, of having the first two launches for the first two CLIPS landings, and others will follow. To date, the NASA CLIPS effort has already generated progress, designing five different types of lunar landers, putting into being a chain of high-tech parts suppliers to allow production of lunar landers in the U.S., many of which did not exist before, and also pioneering new technical approaches. We think that NASA's strength in contracting with different CLIPS providers for different cargoes of NASA payloads is that the companies uh, exhibit different strengths different approaches, they have different designs, and in some cases using different technologies to land on the moon. Thomas Serbukin, the former head of NASA science, described CLIPS using a sports analogy. He said each landing attempt would be like taking a shot on goal. Today, we don't know how many of the early attempts will be successful, but I can tell you that these American companies are technically strong and rigorous, they're business savvy, they're resourceful, and they're driven to be successful. They want to secure that first mover advantage in generating this new lunar economy. And NASA will use that to advance science and technology on the moon. Today, you're going to hear about the first set of NASA scientific payloads headed for the moon for what, on what we expect to be the first launch attempt of Peregrine 1 from Astrobotic Technologies the end of December. This upcoming year is going to be extremely exciting. I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you so much, Joel. Thanks for taking us off. Uh, we'll now hand it over to Ryan Watkins. Ryan? Thank you, Nilfer. Um, I'm going to briefly talk about the payloads that we have flying on um, the Astrobotic Peregrine 1 mission. Uh, so Astrobotic has five NASA-sponsored payloads that will be making important contributions to lunar science and exploration. Uh, this suite of payloads will collect data on the lunar exosphere, volatiles on the lunar surface, um, as well as the radiation environment, all helping us better prepare for sending crewed missions back to the moon. Uh, so just to run quickly through um, the instruments from um, NASA that are flying on this astrobotic mission, we have the Peregrine Ion Trap Mass Spectrometer, or PITMIS, um, and this instrument will be investigating the lunar exosphere using a compact mass spectrometer. Uh, PITMIS will measure the lunar exosphere throughout the course of a lunar day to characterize the release and movement of volatile species of interest to both science and human exploration, so such things such as water. Um, and the science results from PITMIS uh, will aim to improve our knowledge of the abundance and behavior of volatiles on the moon and how they respond to perturbations such as rocket exhaust. Um, of particular note, um, PITMIS is actually a partnership between NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, the Open University, and the European Space Agency. So we have some international participation on that one as well. And the payload PI for that is Dr. Barbara Cohen. Uh, next, we have the Neutron Spectrometer System, or NSS. 
Uh, this instrument will measure the number and energy of neutrons present in the lunar surface environment, uh, which can be used to infer the amount of hydrogen present in the environment. So specifically, NSS uh, will measure uh, neutron flux variations with the local lunar time and derive soil hydration and bulk composition by looking at low energy neutron flux measurements. And the payload PI for that one um, is Dr. Richard Elphick. Uh, next, we have a Lunar Retroreflector Array, or LRA for short. Uh, this is an array of eight retroreflectors, so think like kind of like small mirrors, um, on a small aluminum support structure. And so the LRA will enable precision laser ranging to help determine the distance from any orbiting or landing spacecraft to the LRA that will be on the lander. So LRA is a passive optical instrument, and it's going to function as a permanent location marker on the moon for decades to come. And the payload PI for LRA is Dr. Zhao Li Sun. And then we have, um, next is the Near Infrared Volatiles Spectrometer System, or NERVIS for short. Uh, NERVIS is a suite of sensors um, that includes um, a near infrared spectrometer, a thermal radiometer, and a high-resolution seven-color imager. And so these sensors uh, will make observations of the lunar surface to determine the surface composition, um, the fine-scale morphology, and the thermal environment. And so NERVIS will contribute <laughs> to our understanding of how volatiles may migrate across the lunar surface, um, including volatiles that could be deposited as part of the lander's engine exhaust, um, as well as um, looking at how surface temperatures influence the retention and loss of volatiles. And the PI for that one um, is Dr. Tony Colabrit. Um, and then finally, um, we have the Linear Energy Transfer Spectrometer, or LETS. Um, this is a radiation monitor that will measure um, the radiation environment both during lunar cruise and lunar orbit. It will also measure any solar particle events that occur while the instrument is in transit or on the lunar surface. And it will obtain detailed characterization of crew ionizing radiation dosages on the lunar surface, um, including primary galactic cosmic rays. And the PI for that is Dr. Eddie uh, Simones. Um, so those are our five NASA-sponsored payloads. Um, and just to quickly note, I want to share some details about the landing site where they're actually going to be making their measurements. So the landing site for Astrobotics Peregrine Mission 1 um, is a Mare region, so a, a region of ancient basaltic lava flows, named uh, Sinus Viscositatis, or the Bay of Stickiness. And so this name actually alludes uh, to the near, nearby Grootheisen domes, which are kind of an en enigmatic feature on the lunar surface that's volcanic, volcanic in nature. Um, and characterizing the emplacement history of these Grootheisen domes relative to episodes of Mare volcanism is a really important component of understanding the entire history of the region. Um, and so characterizing the emplacement history of the Grootheisen domes is actually the primary objective of our Lunar Vice instrument suite that's going to fly to the domes um, later 2026-2027 um, timeframe. And so our current astrobotic payload manifest includes several instruments that are going to take measurements of this Mare region that surrounds the domes that will complement the Lunar Vice measurements. So that multispectral measurements of both the Mare and the domes will help us to understand mixing of the materials on the domes, um, this lunar vice suite that will fly later will actually rove to the edge of the domes um, near the end of their surface op operations to take images and measurements of the MARI materials 
But having these in situ measurements from the astrobiotic payloads um, from the MARI itself will greatly enhance our overall understanding of the invaded MARI deposit. Um, and that's all I have. So thank you, Nolan, for I'll hand it back to you. Thank you so much, Ryan, for going through some of the science at our landing site. And those were the details of the Peregrine Lander, which is going to land on the moon, hopefully, hopefully, next month. So it's going to be a busy month on the moon with uh, the Japanese trying to land there and the Americans trying to land there as well. So we'll see what happens. We'll keep you up to date with the space show. Well, let's go out now with a little taste of the music by Jessica Locke for the movie Apollo 8. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie, presenting for the Space Association of Australia here on Southern FM.